At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 26, The Decline of the British Raj and the Rise of India. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. In this episode, we're going to explore the origins of the Indian independence movement, the decline of the British power in South Asia, and early Cold War India and Pakistan. The independence of India would have a lasting impact on the Cold War. The loss of India set in motion the decline of the British Empire, which left the world in a bipolar geopolitical framework. After the independence of India, Great Britain economically and militarily slowly fell behind the United States and the Soviet Union. Shraj was the economic heart of the British Empire and had been for centuries. Its markets, resources, and trade was worth billions of dollars. Moreover, its huge population supplied the British economy with cheap labor, a large consumer base, and a vast pool of soldiers which proved to be vital in winning the First and Second World Wars. Losing control of these vast resources and manpower made Great Britain slip from superpower status to great power status. The Indian Revolution was one of the largest in history, akin to the American, Chinese, Russian, or French revolutions. Some 400 million subjects left the British Empire to become independent citizens. India would shape the Cold War by its endorsement of the Nine Align Movement as it navigated between both the Soviet Union and China on the one hand and Britain and the United States on the other. But India wasn't the only nation to gain independence from the Raj. Burma, Sri Lanka, and Pakistan would gain independence. Pakistan would forge a complex alliance with the United States that would continue to the 21st century and the War on Terror. India's Cold War partition would also result in four wars being fought between India and Pakistan, the most recent of which was in 1999. In the 21st century, another clash between these neighbors could possibly result in a nuclear war. Indian independence movement also socially and culturally influenced the Cold War, especially the process of decolonization. India was held up as an example of self-determination, which had triumphed against, at times, impossible odds. Its methods, tactics, and leaders were subsequently studied by other revolutionary leaders like Nelson Mandela and and used extensively by Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. Gandhian strategy was even incorporated into the Polish Solidarity Movement. India also continued to be a fierce critic of imperialism during the Cold War and worked in solidarity with other anti-colonial movements around the world. Moreover, the Indian movement for independence speaks to our own time. Movements around social justice like the LGBT movement, Black Lives Matter, and other populist movements such as the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street – have all been social and political movements which have influenced the political debate here in America and in much of the world. Learning about India's struggle for independence will give you some insight into why some social movements which start so strong 
ultimately fail, and why others which languish for years ultimately triumph. Unfortunately, I don't have enough time to explain how Great Britain came to control India. Additionally, the Indian independence movement was a long, complex movement, and I don't cover every aspect in depth, nor do I examine all the characters involved, so consider this a condensed history of it. Finally, I, as always, I want to apologize for any mispronunciations. India, like Europe and China, was thousands of years old and had saw its fair share of great empires rise and fall. When the Europeans began to arrive in the 16th century, most of India was ruled by the great Mughal Empire. For reasons beyond the scope of this series, the empire decided, started to decline and India broke into small fractious kingdoms. By 1857, the British East India Company, a chartered government-backed monopoly, came to politically and militarily dominate the Indian subcontinent. Unlike most corporations, the East India Company had a large standing private army, which was composed primarily of local Indian soldiers or supoys. India was a large area with a complex mix of different ethnic and religious groups. Nevertheless, the indigenous peoples of India found common cause in their mistreatment by the British, and in 1857, a general uprising occurred throughout northern India. There is, however, much historical debate if this is to be considered a revolution or merely a rebellion amongst part of India's population. Rumors had been circulating during this era that the company was going to force everyone to become Christians, since the company had semi-supported the missionary system in the country. There were also rumors that the Sepoy's new cartridges were made of pork and beef fats, which was a sin to Hindu and Muslim troops. This was still the days of the muzzle-loading rifles, so the top of the cartridge bag had to be bitten off and poured down the barrel. Beyond this, they were unhappy about their treatment in the army. They were racially discriminated against and were paid less than European troops, nor could they command European troops, despite their tenure or experience. Beyond the army, the peasants were burdened with excessive taxes and debt and were progressively indebted and impoverished. Flogging, torture, and jailing for debt were common. Company rule also meant economic misery for artisans and craftsmen. The annexation of Indian states by the company meant the end of their patrons. Millions of artists, scholars, and priests went hungry as the rulers, landowners, and bureaucratic elite who supported them ceased to exist. On top of this, British policy discouraged Indian-made goods and promoted British goods. As a result of free trade, British goods flooded the Indian market with no tariffs, whereas Indian goods were taxed in Britain. Indeed, the only goal of the company was greater profits. The lives of its subjects were of little or no consequence. Most of northern, central, and western India rose up against the British, including Delhi, the capital of the old Mughal Empire. South India remained loyal, and the Punjab and Bengal were only marginally affected. About half of the company's 200,000 troops defected to the rebel side. For a year, they fought the British. Soon, however, they ran out of gunpowder and shot and were forced to fight with pikes and swords. They also suffered from a poor system of command and control and failed to coordinate their forces. The British quickly brought in reinforcements and violently crushed the rebellion. Men were attached to cannons and had their insides blown out. Muslim bodies were sewn into pig carcasses so that they couldn't go to heaven, and much of Delhi's civilian population was pushed out of the city and forced to starve. Although, it should be noted, atrocities were committed by both sides during the conflict. 
In many ways, this represented the last attempt of pre-colonial India to push back the invaders and reestablish themselves. Ultimately, like the Sioux victory at the Battle of Little Bighorn, it was too little too late. Apart from their hatred of the alien rule, they had no political vision for the future. They fought primarily to, be, to regain their lost privilege and to turn back the clock to a time before the British. After 1858, opposition to British rule took on a more regional focus. The autocrats of Indian society were less involved as well. They had either been killed, became impoverished, or were co-opted. The focus of protest also changed as well. Peasants struggled merely to improve their meager living conditions versus overthrowing British rule. Bengal saw, saw peasants' unrest in the 1870s and 1880s as a result of high rents. Disputes were settled through the pressure on the landlords and legislation introduced in 1885 to protect tenant farmers from the landlords. These protesters uh, were not anti-government and used the British legal system. They were important. This was important, however, because they achieved a level of Hindu-Muslim solidarity and attracted a number of young Indian intellectuals to the peasants' cause. In the early half of the 19th century, many Indian intellectuals adopted a positive attitude towards British rule, hoping that Britain would share its technological and scientific advances with its wider empire. The process of disillusionment set in gradually after 1860 as the reality of imperial rule showed a decline in Indian economic, scientific, and technical growth. They argued that India had become a supplier of cheap foodstuffs and raw materials to Great Britain and a dumping ground for cheap British goods, all under the name of free trade. India grew poor, not richer, under British rule. They therefore argued for an alternative path of economic development independent of British rule. Foreign capital was also seen as a great evil that impoverished the country. They argued that foreign capital pushed out domestic capital and led to a drain of capital from India to Britain, strengthening British hold over the country. They believed to accept foreign capital was to barter the future of the nation for petty gains of today. These intellectuals started to imagine what an alternative Indian society might look like independent of British colonialism. Many of these intellectuals went on to form the Indian National Congress in December 1885, the first organized movement of Indian nationalism on a nationwide scale. You may be asking yourself, why would the British allow such an organization to exist? The answer is because it was created with the help of a former British civil servant, A.O. Hume. Hume felt that Indians needed a way to express their political aspirations without resorting to violence, and that this would deter the possibility of revolt. The Indians, on the other hand, knew that without British approval, no nationalist organization could be founded. Their early goals consisted of the introduction of import duties, no expansion of the British Empire into Burma or Afghanistan, the right to bear arms, freedom of the press, reduction in military spending, helping the poor, Indianization of the civil service, the right of Indian judges to try Europeans. Also during this period, a number of early Indian newspapers were founded, uh, such as the Hindu, the Tribune, and the Bengali. The influence of these papers spread far beyond its literate readers, nor were they confined to cities or towns. Newspapers would reach small villages where they would be read by a reader to tens of others. Every piece of news and editorial comment would then be discussed. Gradually, small libraries sprang up where newspapers were saved and an occasional book would come into the collection. Newspapers came to play an important role as a voice of opposition to the government. 
These newspapers also help or help to create a sense of nation in India as issues happening in the far north of India could be now be discussed by those in the far south and vice versa. Rao's political and national consciousness and to expose the ills of colonial rule was no easy task. In 1870, the government introduced a law making it illegal to cite feelings of dissatisfaction with the government with imprisonment of three years to life. Indian journalists adopted a distinct writing style to get around this. Before making negative comments about the government, they would often begin with praise for the queen and the declaration of loyalty. Other articles would appear as letters of advice to the government. Radical segments from British and or Irish papers were also reprinted in Indian papers as their authors were outside of the Indian penal code. However, uh, co combining simplicity, sarcasm, and subtlety and making it understandable to a semi-literate society was a very dif difficult task. Congress's biggest challenge was forging the disparate ethnic and religious communities of India into a single nation. The British encouraged these differences as part of their strategy in ruling India and starting in the late 19th century used it to justify their rule over India as a neutral arbiter. They claimed if they ceased to govern India, the region would collapse into chaos and bloodshed. Congress sought to create a common political platform around which political workers in different regions could mobilize support and educate people. Congress sought to create a modern society and rejected much of traditional Indian society. The economic condition of India and the poverty of its population was the issue around which they hoped to unite the disparate groups of Indian society. Money being transferred from one nation to another was easily understood by most peasants, and their subsistence existence seemed to confirm this theory. Editation on economic issues undermined the legitimacy of British rule in India. Britain worked hard to promote itself as an image of fair and just play, while all, where all benefited from its benevolent rule. Congress's economic arguments systematically ate away at these justifications. Congress was therefore based on a broad socioeconomic and political vision of, of Indian unity grounded on democratic ideas, civil liberties, secularization, self-reliance, and egalitarianism. The movement went a long way to popularize democratic ideas and institutions in India. Congress fought for the introduction of representative government and adult franchise. The Congress party itself was organized on a democratic basis in the form of a parliament. It not only permitted but encouraged free speech and different opinions within the party and the movement. Indeed, some of its most important decisions were only taken after heated debate. In 1888, it was decided that no resolution could be passed to which an overwhelming majority of Hindus or Muslim delegates objected, and in 1889, a clause was adopted that wherever Christians, Muslims, Hindus, or others were a significant minority, their local elected council members would not be less than their proportion in the population. Congress also took a hard stance against the caste system, which it saw as a debilitating influence on Indian society. They felt it worked against patriotic feelings and negated the growth of democratic ideas. Women also came to play an important role in Congress and as Congress endorsed a political equality of the sexes. Women came to play a larger role in Congress politics and indeed played a larger role than women in British or American politics during this period. As Nehru's daughter, Adira Gandhi, would go on to become prime minister in 1966, some 13 years before Margaret Thatcher, 
and as of yet, the United States, which has never had a female president. Through the period of the British Raj, Congress fought against attacks by the government on the press and civil liberties and expanded them when and where possible. Congress also emphasized economic development, which would dominate its agenda in the early Cold War. They wished to build up India's uh, industrial base, independent of foreign investment, and stressed economic planning. Nevertheless, other than backing big business, Congress adopted a pro-poor orientation which was strengthened with the rise of Gandhi and Nehru. The party even pushed for radical agrarian reform. Nonetheless, socialism never became an official goal of the party, as independence was the ultimate goal and they did not want to lose the support of the middle class and wealthy. Congress did not transcend the concept of, capitalist, of a capitalist society and respected the concept of private property. Ironically, they fought hard not to hate the British or any peoples, merely the principle and practice of colonialism. Consequently, they were supported by a large number of British men and women and political groups and kept close ties to progressives, socialists, and anti-colonial forces around the world. In 1905, most prominent nationalists were starting to demand some form of Indian self-government. However, despite the nationalists believing that India should eventually become self-governing, they moved very cautiously in putting forward political demands, for they still feared the government declaring their actions disloyal and suppressing them. Despite the rise of these nationalist forces, India remained a British despot, as it had in 1858. The government had added Indian members to its legislative council after 1858 uh, to have an Indian perspective, but these Indians were collaborators. Moreover, from 1862 to 1892, only 45 Indians had been nominated to the body. In 1892, their members were increased on the council, with a few even being elected, and they were given the right to discuss the annual budget. But they could neither vote nor amend it. They could ask questions, but follow-up questions weren't allowed. On average, the council met for about 13 days out of the year. In 1905, British authorities decided to split Bengal, and the Indians protested this measure. More radical voices in Congress and other nationalist movements called for more sweeping action to achieve their objectives. They argued for mass political action through protests, marches, strikes, and boycotts. And not just traditional boycotts against goods, but boycotts of government schools, colleges, and courts. Foreign cloth would be burned. Shops would, which sold foreign merchandise picketed. Women would refuse to, to wear bangles and use foreign utensils. Washerwomen refused to wash foreign clothes, and priests declined offerings with sugar. This era also saw India try and develop its first industries and businesses, such as textile mills, soap and match factories, banks, and insurance companies. Most of these businesses failed, but a few were successful. In summation, this new methodology incorporated large parts of society into the nationalist movement across different classes and different regions of the country. The biggest drawback of these mass actions was that they failed to garner the support of most Muslims. The British also worked to deepen this divide by helping to establish the All-Indian Muslim League, in contrast to Congress, which was predominantly Hindu. In 1908, the movement had spent itself. The government had come down with heavy hand against the protesters. People were, were fined, beaten, public meetings had been banned, and the press had been censored. Nine major leaders were deported, student demonstrators were expelled from school and college, and barred from future government service. 
Internal squabbles over negotiating with the government had also weakened the movement. They soon discovered that the difficulty of maintaining endless protest in the face of harsh repression. At, po- at some point, people lose steam. Finally, the protests lacked effective leadership and organization. There was no Gandhi or Nehru to lead the movement. There were leaders, but they were lacked a national following and authority that these leader, later figures would embody, similar to the recent Occupy movement that lacked political leadership and organization. Many revolutionary youth, seeing the failure of the moderate movement and with little prospect of going back to school or college, copied the Irish and Russian revolutionary models and attempted to assassinate unpopular British officials. In 1907, an unsuccessful attempt was made on the governor of Bengal. In 1908, an attempted assassination of an unpopular judge misidentified his carriage and killed two women. Even the viceroy, Lord Herditing, was wounded as a bomb was thrown at his elephant. Revolutionary terrorism, though, eventually petered out. Lacking a base of support and organized in small secret groups, they could not withstand the suppression by the massive imperial state. In all, 186 revolutionaries were killed or convicted between 1908 and 1918. In early 1915, as the First World War raged, Annie Besant, a socialist and women's rights advocate, launched a campaign through her two newspapers for India to become a self-governing dominion like South Africa or Canada. Congress and the Muslim League did not support her creation of a Home Rule League, but many of their members joined local chapters. Indeed, Nehru himself joined. By 1917, membership had grown to some 7,000 members. The government of Madras in the south quickly banned students from joining, and in June, Besant and the rest of the leadership was placed under arrest. This resulted in a nationwide protest. In response, the government in London declared in August 1917 that India would be allowed a measure of self-governance in the future. Although no dates were given, Annie Besant was released in September After this, the Home Rule movement dissolved. The moderates had been pacified by Britain's promise of future self-rule, whereas others saw the movement as a failure and drifted back to Congress and the Muslim League. Following this setback, a new figure emerged to push forward the independence movement, Gandhi. Gandhi, a trained British lawyer of Indian heritage, had led the South African Indian population uh, in its struggle against the white apartheid government there. Gandhi had succeeded in using nonviolence to end racist practices there aimed against Indians. In South Africa, Gandhi learned to lead Indians with different religious, ethnic, and economic backgrounds. Gandhi returned to India but made no political statements and just toured the country. Privately, though, he believed the Home Rule movement would fail. He also believed that Congress and the nationalist movement would need to change tactics to achieve any type of success. In February 1919, two bills, properly known as the Rolat Bills, were introduced to curtail civil liberties in India in the name of curbing terrorist violence. In essence, they were a virtual slap in the face after Indians' contribution in the First World War and all but reneged on the government's promise for future self-governance in 1917. The Muslim community was also angry. The British had promised them that for their support during the war, they would be lenient on Turkey and the Caliph which many Indian Muslims regarded as their spiritual leader. Nonetheless, they were upset to learn the Ottoman Empire would lose control of Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem, the three holiest cities in Islam. Gandhi called for non-cooperation. 
Millions flocked to Gandhi's call. The protest didn't proceed as hoped, though. There was confusion about the start date, and there was violence in the streets as well. This set a pattern for disorder and violence. Events in the Punjab quickly escalated out of control. The arrest of two local leaders led to an attack on post office, telegraph wires, and Europeans. The army was called in under General Dyer, who issued an order prohibiting public assemblies. A few days later, a large crowd assembled to attend a festival. Dyer became furious that his orders had not been obeyed and ordered his troops to fire into the unarmed crowd without warning. The shooting continued for 10 minutes. The government estimated that 379 innocent civilians had been massacred. The brutality of the incident shocked the nation. The Punjab was later placed under martial law, and some inhabitants were forced to crawl on their bellies before Europeans in a move of humiliation and submission to British rule. Gandhi, overwhelmed by the violence, withdrew from the movement. The House of Lords voted in favor of of Dyer's actions, and the British public eventually collected £30,000 for his defense. A year later, Gandhi relaunched his movement. Indian officials gave up titles and honors from the British. Schools, colleges, and government offices were boycotted. New Indian-run colleges and schools were established. In all, some 90,000 left class. Foreign cloth was burned, state liquor was boycotted, and millions refused to pay their taxes. Hand-spinning of cloth was also encouraged, and people were asked to maintain Hindu and Muslim unity and nonviolence. Union membership also grew during this period to 250,000, and a large part of this had joined uh, 1919 through 1921. Railway workers as well also struck on several occasions in support of non-cooperation. In the countryside, peasants looted bazaars, houses, granaries, and clashed with the police, although many areas remained quiet. The government had little trouble in suppressing these disturbances. Crowds were fired upon, leaders and protesters were arrested. Tax revenues started to show a sharp decline. In July 1921, a prominent nationalist Muslim leader declared it was religiously unlawful for Muslims to serve in the British Army. As a result, he, along with a number of other Muslim leaders, were arrested. When the Prince of Wales came to visit, he was greeted by a huge bonfire in Bombay of British textiles and street fighting between those Indians loyal to the regime and protesters. The protesters attacked Europeans, Anglo-Indians, or people of mixed British and Indian heritage, and Christians. This resulted in police shootings and three days of riots, which led to the deaths of 59 people. Peace only returned when Gandhi fasted for three days, refusing to eat until the violence stopped. In mid-January 1922, Gandhi wrote a letter to the Viceroy, warning that unless the government lifted the ban on civil liberties and released its political prisoners, he would be forced to go ahead with a mass civil disobedience. The Viceroy ignored Gandhi's letter, and things escalated. In February, police opened fire into a crowd of protesters and were attacked. The police fled back to their police station, severely outnumbered. The protesters set the building on fire. Those police that tried to escape were hacked to pieces by the mob, while the rest burned alive. In all, 22 policemen died. Hearing of the events, Gandhi decided to call for an end to the movement on February 12, 1922. The end of the non-cooperation movement in February 1922 was followed by the arrest of Gandhi in March. He was convicted and sentenced to six years in prison for the crime of spreading dissatisfaction with the government. Gandhi was eventually released from jail in February 1924 for health reasons.
The result of his arrest was disorganization and demoralization of the nationalist movement. Thus, a new era of resistance began. Congress moved the, the fight off the streets and back to the legislative and legal process. Most agreed that civil disobedience could not be carried on indefinitely, and a period of rest was needed. Elections to the Legislative Council were held in November 1923, and Congress and the Nationalists won 42 of the 101 elected seats, despite the extremely narrow franchise. The new government built a coalition between the Muslim League, Congress, and the Liberals. Nevertheless, despite the appearance of power, real authority was in the hands of the Viceroy and the local governors, and by extension London. Political deadlock soon ensued as Nehru passed legislation that would transfer all power to the Legislative Assembly. This was vetoed, and, and in response, the council vetoed the government's budgetary requests. It was soon realized that the nationalist movement was making little progress towards their goal of independence with this strategy. Others decided that terrorism, again, was the best solution to the current deadlock. 1930 to 1932 saw attempts made on two governors' lives. Two inspector generals of the police were assassinated. Unlike the last wave of terrorism, this wave saw the participation of Indian women in the struggle. In all, some 22 officials and 20 civilians were killed. In response, the government brutally suppressed the opposition. The government declared 20 new acts and instituted a reign of terror. It burnt villages to the ground, imposed fines, and in 1933 sent Nehru to jail for two years. Government suppression, as in 1908 to 1918, decimated the terrorist ranks. Those that did survive returned to Congress and the nonviolent movement led by Gandhi, or turned to Marxism and joined the Communist Party. The Russian Revolution of 1917 had electrified the world and was widely studied in India as they felt the Tsarist regime and the Raj were very similar governments. Many even traveled to the Soviet Union for a better life. Nehru's journey to the countryside to organize the peasants. Student and youth organizations were organized all over India from 1927 on, with speakers advocating radical political, economic, and social changes. Nehru himself was a self-avowed socialist. He argued that political freedom would only be meaningful with economic emancipation of the masses. He read widely about Marxism and socialism during his time in jail, 1922 to 1923, and in 1927 attended the Anti-Imperialist Conference in Brussels and toured the Soviet Union before returning to India. He nevertheless thought that independence was the primary goal and economic development and egalitarianism secondary, and thus shaped the Congress uh, in as much of a pro-socialist direction without offending middle class or wealthy members. By the late 1920s, the regional communist parties started to become a force in Indian politics. They had been working within the broader left and trade union movement throughout the early 1920s to gain strength. In Bombay, communist party membership had grown from about 324 to 54,000 by the end of 1928. Communist influence had also spread to workers in the railways, factories, and mills. The communists, with their supporters in industry, organized strikes and large demonstrations throughout the late 1920s. Government was nervous about the alliance forming between the, the working class, nationalists, and the broader political left, ar and arrested virtually the entire leadership of the radical left.
Nevertheless, by the early 1930s, the Communist Party had aligned with Nehru and Congress to form a powerful left-wing coalition. In 1927, the Conservative Party in Britain, facing political defeat in the upcoming election against Labour, decided to not leave the fate of India, and by extension the British Empire, in the hands of left-wing socialists. Therefore, a commission was established to study the situation. The commission was immediately protested, as it included no Indians. In 1928, a final report was issued which called for India to be given dominion status like Canada or Australia. Universal adult suffrage, equal rights for women, freedom to join unions, and separation of state and religion was also recommended in the report. Nehru, returning from Europe in a trip to the Soviet Union, rejected the proposal and called for full independence from the British Empire. Congress subsequently declared that if the British government did not agree to the creation of an independent, self-governing India within a year, they would launch a new campaign of civil disobedience. The new Labour government called for a roundtable uh, discussion uh, about how India would become a dominion, but agreed to no date for Indian independence. Therefore, Gandhi and Congress prepared for another round of civil disobedience. Before this began, though, Nehru, with the help of Gandhi, was elected the head of the Congress party. Many may be asking, why didn't Gandhi become head of the Congress party? And the answer was that Gandhi saw himself as a spiritual leader, not a politician. Nehru could take positions and stands that Gandhi could not, and Gandhi could speak to the soul of the Indian people in a way Nehru would not have been able to as a politician. Thus, they complemented their leadership of the nationalist movement. However, despite their close alliance, the two men did have differences, and Nehru often felt that Gandhi neglected class issues. During this period, 1929 to 1930, the Great Depression hit India hard, like the rest of the world, and the colonial government refused to offer any tax or debt relief. The, pre the peasants were put in a situation where they had to continue to pay high rates of taxes, rents, and debts, while their incomes steadily declined, worsening their living conditions even more. The civil disobedience campaign began in 1929. As before, they would refuse to pay taxes. All the legislative members would resign. Gandhi also launched his famed attack on the salt tax. The British had placed a tax on all salt in India and outlawed people from collecting salt on the beach from natural sources. Gandhi saw this tax as one of the most inhumane taxes as it affected even the poorest in society. Gandhi, along with a band of 78, began to march to the sea to collect salt and all but dared the government to arrest him. Even before the march began, thousands came to his home to march with him. The government was placed in a no-win situation. If they suppressed the march, they would appear brutal and oppressive, but if they did nothing, they would seem weak and not in control. Eventually, the hardliners in the military and the government won, and Gandhi was arrested. Naturally, there was a massive wave of protests to his arrest. 90,000 people were arrested, more than three times the number in the 1920-1922 non-cooperation movement. Government revenues from land taxes, liquor, and cigarettes had also been greatly affected. In March 1931, a pact was signed between the government and Congress, which released all those arrested, and the government conceded the right to allow Indians at the coast to collect salt. 
In exchange, Congress agreed to end its civil disobedience campaign and to participate in the next government roundtable about India. Those in the colonial government saw the pact as a major defeat. The government felt that Gandhi must be stopped from preparing for another civil disobedience campaign. They recognized the strategy of massive, massive protest, rest, protest, or STS, struggle, truce, struggle. Second, they had to show the strength to maintain the loyalty of its loyal Indian supporters. Finally, it had to make sure the movement didn't spread further to other parts of the country and society. Therefore, the government introduced virtual martial law. All civil liberties were canceled. The police were given unlimited power to arrest and seize property. Thousands of political workers and nationalists were arrested on terrorism charges. Congress decided to re resume civil disobedience in response. Gandhi requested to meet with the viceroy, but he refused, and Gandhi was arrested in January 1932. Within a week, almost the entire leadership of the Congress party was arrested. Indian people responded with anger and protest, but were confronted with relentless repression. The Congress, along with its allies, were declared illegal, and their offices and funds were seized. Protesters were beaten and received heavy fines. While in jail, they were tortured and whipped often. In Gujarat, those who did not pay their taxes were stripped naked publicly, whipped, and given electric shocks. Freedom of the press was ended. 109 journalists were arrested, and 98 printing presses were seized. 1934 to 1935, the party and nationalist movement were devastated. There were two opinions as to how to move forward. The first was by Gandhi, who called on Congress to work in the villages and countryside to revive handicrafts and to prepare for the next mass movement. Another section of Congress advocated a return to the legislative process as in 1923. Nehru, however, rejected both these plans and opted for a focus on the interests of the poor to mobilize an even greater part of society. He also advocated a continuing, un unending struggle against the colonial state versus the STS method. He believed that the revolution had reached a new phase which required constant, continuous resistance to the colonial state. Gandhi eventually brokered an agreement between the legislative wing and Nehru. Gandhi argued for attempting both strategies at the same time, which they both agreed to. I want to take a quick break here and thank you for listening to the podcast and for sharing us with your friends and family. Me and my colleague, David Force, spend a great deal of time on this podcast. This episode took me about 40 hours to make and cost roughly $35 in supplies, not including hosting costs. Granted, this episode is out of the ordinary, but I like to go above and beyond in bringing you guys new and original content, exploring the Cold War from new and different perspectives. Nevertheless, you guys are the real heart of this show. If you have ideas or suggestions, feel free to email us or feel free to fill out the survey on the, on the website. I know I could do a better job at pronunciations. I got that. Uh, but any other advice or even positive feedback is appreciated. It lets us know that we're moving in the right direction. However, I want to thank Thomas Roll for your generous contribution. If you're a regular listener to the podcast and you enjoy our content, I ask that you consider donating $5 through our Patreon on the website. If you could do more, thank you. Every dollar helps. Obviously, my goal with all of this is if I made enough money, I could quit my job and make History of the Cold War podcast a weekly show. But we're far away from that point. 
If you want to make a one-time contribution to the podcast, check out our website as well, as we just recently added PayPal and Venmo. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Despite the government's victory in suppressing the nationalist movement 1932 to 1933, it knew that it could not indefinitely rule India by sheer force of arms. In August 1935, the British government and parliament passed the Indian Act of 1935. It sought to establish an Indian federation based on the British Indian provinces and the princely states. The princely states were small, although some of them weren't small, kingdoms throughout India ruled by Nawabs and Maharajas. They were nominally free kingdoms with their authority ensured by the British. Their foreign policy was conducted by Britain, but they managed their local affairs for the most part. In all, there were some 565 princely states in India. Two-fifths of the Indian subcontinent were ruled by Indian princes. Some of these states were as large as European countries like Hyderabad, Mysore, and Kashmir. Most of these states were run as autocratic states with absolute power centered in the hands of a prince and his ministers. They were often more oppressive than their colonial provinces of India administered by the British. The representatives to this new federal legislature would be appointed in the princely states and elections held in the British colonial provinces. The vote was limited to about one-sixth of adults, while defense and foreign affairs would remain in the hands of the viceroy. Governors would still be appointed by London and could veto local legislation. They also had the power to dismiss the local legislature if they thought it necessary. Therefore, the British hoped that regional divides and a representation of the princely states and the new federal legislature would delude the, the left's power and ensure Britain's continued control of the nation. The British also hoped that the moderate forces and the wealthy would be placated with the constitutional reforms and work with the government and break with their, their more radical allies on the left. The 1935 Act was condemned by nearly all sections of Indian society and rejected by Congress. Congress called for a constitutional assembly to write a new constitution, elected on the basis of adult franchise. The nationalists all agreed that the 1935 Act must be fought, but how would they fight an act in such a weakened state? After bitter argument, it was decided that they would go through the voting process and go along with the act and try to achieve a victory at the polls despite the narrow franchise. Congress won a massive mandate. 716 of the 1,161 seats were won by Congress and the Federal Assembly. On the local level, they won a majority in most provinces. Congress members, many of whom had been in jail only weeks before, were ruling the government. Congress won an immense amount of prestige as a result of the victory. The new government immediately set out to help the people of India. Congress's ministers reduced their own salaries. The emergency powers of 1932 were lifted. As were the bans on books and the press, though the Communist Party remained illegal. It was free to operate in many Congress-controlled provinces. Thousands of political prisoners were freed. Prohibition was introduced in some regions, as were protections and opportunities for the untouchables. Education opportunities were also expanded for girls and untouchables, and mass literacy campaigns were also launched. The colonial government's plan of devolving power to, re to the regional level, hoping to weaken the nationalist movement, had completely backfired. Congress captured power on the local level to achieve nationwide results. 
Their calls to the poor were vindicated through their policies, and Congress emerged stronger and more popular than ever. The outbreak of World War II in 1939, Gandhi urged the British to surrender to the Nazis. Britain ignored his advice and chose to, f to fight organizing India as part of its empire to participate. By 1942, with Japan's entry into the war and British defeats in Hong Kong, Malaya, Singapore, and Burma, there was a growing feeling of imminent collapse for the British Empire. There was such a fear that India would fall to the Japanese that there was a run on the banks and people started hoarding money. In 1942, the British government met with Congress and offered full independence in exchange for their full support for the government in their war against Germany and Japan. Gandhi refused, unwilling to participate in violence. Nehru took over negotiations but was unhappy with the concessions the British wanted for the princely states, so Congress rejected the plan. Gandhi called for Britain to withdraw from India and Congress to adopt a policy of nonviolence and to work with any Japanese invasion. He stated that he would not tolerate anything less than complete freedom. Meanwhile, the colonial government prepared for any social disturbances. The government opted for a preemptive strike as well. In a single nationwide sweep, all the top leaders of Congress were arrested and taken to black locations around the country. India erupted in protest. In some places, huge crowds attacked police stations and hoisted national Indian flags, replacing the Union Jack. Elsewhere, villages removed railroad tracks, blew up bridges, and cut telephone lines. Students went on strike throughout the nation. There were also attacks on Europeans. In one incident, two RAF officers were murdered and had their bodies paraded through the streets. However, using the same brutality as in years past, the protests were put down in six weeks. From jail, Gandhi began a fast for 21 days. All over the country, more riots and protests broke out for his release, but the British, especially Churchill, didn't care and were unmoved by his fast. The government even made plans for his funeral. In the end, Gandhi gave up, up as he saw that it was having no effect on the British. India was also weakened because of a terrible famine in 1943. During the war, Britain had shipped grain out of India, weakening the domestic food supply network. Churchill also ordered a 60% cut in foodstuffs shipped to India due to the war as shipping and food were needed elsewhere. Compounding this, the rice harvest of 1942 had been poor. This caused a massive increase in prices which the extremely poor peasants couldn't pay. The government of Bengal also refused to regulate prices. Churchill and the British also refused to release emergency food stocks as well arguing that they might be needed by Britain at some point. Around 6 million people were affected by the famine, and between 1 and 2 million died as a result. The British moved quickly to suppress evidence of the famine, although the British can't be blamed entirely, as the Bengali government was primarily elected and run by native Indians. Nevertheless, Churchill and the government in London showed gross inhumanity in not attempting to address the famine. Unlike previous movements, in 1942 and 1943, Congress lacked the broad base of support in Indian society it had in the past. Both the Muslim League and Communists stayed away from the Quit India movement. The Muslim League agreed to cooperate with the British in exchange for assurances for a future Muslim state in India after the war. World War II began, the working class and Communist Party in Bombay were some of the fiercest uh, to protest the war. However, when the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, 
the communists argued that the nature of the war had changed and became a staunch supporter of the government, arguing it was the duty of the world's working class to help defeat fascism. Because of this, the Communist Party opposed Congress and Gandhi's Quit India movement in August 1942. The end of the war in India was greeted with relief. A few industrialists and businessmen had gained greatly, but the vast majority of Indians had suffered. 89,000 had died in the Second World War. Millions had died from starvation. Others had suffered in prison, torture, and personal hardship. Nevertheless, to Congress's leadership's surprise, they were still motivated to remove the British from India. After the war, the communists returned to their alliance with the Congress. In 1946, 300,000 workers went on strike initially peaceful, and initially peaceful meetings turned violent and workers clashed with the police. Two army battalions had to be brought in to, to restore order and nearly 250 people were killed. In the countryside as well, peasants rose up in opposition to the colonial authority. Initially, the fighting was between the police and peasants, but by the end of 1946, the armed forces were brought in and thousands were arrested, beaten, and killed. The leaders were also arrested and thrown in jail. Secular violence also exploded. In Calcutta, groups of Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs attacked each other. Gangs roamed the streets, killing and raping anyone they could find. The violence quickly spread to other regions, like Bengal and the Punjab. In Calcutta alone, some 15 or 20,000 were killed, and the streets were filled with bodies. The Indian Navy mutinied against poor treatment and racial discrimination. Riots spread to both Calcutta and Bombay. Pitched battles were fought in the streets. Europeans were attacked. Police stations, post offices, shops, and banks were all set ablaze. Students boycotted class. Congress had not called for these uprisings. In fact, no one had. They had been all taken on a life of their own. Troops were called into Calcutta, and 36 people were killed. The mutiny in Bombay was put down with six of the sailors killed, and the city was subdued. More ominously, the government had lost the support of the Indian bureaucracy and armed forces. They openly contributed money and voted for the Congress party. British rule in India was primarily based on three pillars, military force, the control of the economy, and the consent, or at least the acquiescence, of part of the Indian society. The wealthy landlords, princes, and ethnic minorities were their main base of support. The wealthy hoped the British would ensure their control of their wealth, whereas the minorities were ensured that they, the British would treat them fairly. By 1946, the rich and India's minorities questioned Britain's honesty and its commitment to fair play. Moreover, many wealthy and minorities felt their positions would be secure in the new Indian state run by Congress. British control of the economy had been floundering as it was costing more to keep India than let it go. Finally, Britain still maintained the military strength to hold India, but for how long? It had been at war for seven years and was on the brink of bankruptcy. Moreover, the vast majority of its troops in India were of Indian heritage. If they faced another mutiny as in 1857, it was doubtful that they would succeed in retaking the country. More troubling, Britain's greatest creditor, the United States, was increasingly upset about what was happening in India. Mrs. Roosevelt and Madame Chiang Kai-shek had both intervened personally to have the Viceroy release Gandhi from jail. At this point, the British had very few cards to play, 
they have been promising to grant India self-rule for the last 28 years. Only a few hardliners like Churchill still clung to maintaining the British rule in India. On the other hand, Britain couldn't just retreat and call it a day. The loss of face would be too much, and the resulting chaos would cause more problems, not less. So Britain had to find a way to save face and extricate itself, themselves from a situation uh, retaining what little influence they could in the process. The new British Labour government was in a hurry to settle the whole Indian problem. The ban on Congress was lifted. Congresses demanded the transfer of power to one state with minority demands worked out in a framework ranging from autonomy of the Muslim provinces to self-determination via referendum once India received its independence. Britain wanted a united India and an active partner in the Commonwealth. Date for British withdrawal was fixed for June 30, 1948, and a new viceroy was appointed, Lord Mountbatten the king's cousin, and the former Allied commander of Southeast Asia and forces during World War II. He was ordered to study the options around Indian unity or division after independence. He was given until October 1947 to come up with a plan for giving India independence. With the withdrawal of the British imminent, religious and ethnic tensions, which had been held in check by the British for decades, began to boil over. In the Punjab, wealthy Hindus and Sikhs were attacked by the impoverished Muslim peasants. On the very day Mountbatten arrived, riots broke out in Delhi. Mountbatten called on Jinnah, Gandhi, and Nehru to come speak with him, but only Nehru agreed. Princely states wanted Mountbatten to grant them independence, but this would have created hundreds of small states and work against Britain's plans. The Sikhs as well wanted their own state, carved out of the Punjab, Sikhistan, and were threatening civil war. Nonetheless, the Sikhs were scattered throughout the Punjab and a majority in no part. Realistically, neither Hindus or Muslims would ever consent to live under a minority-ruled Sikh state. Gandhi in old age had become more erratic. He despised Jinnah, the leader of the Muslim League, and called him an evil genius. He'd also began to test his vows of celibacy by sleeping naked with young girls at night in an attempt to transcend physical arousal. Several women were involved in this process, and they became very possessive of Gandhi. Even if Gandhi's intentions were pure, many argued it was disrespectful to use these young women, many of whom were he was related to, as objects. India's independence had to go well. Washington and London were worried about communist influence. India bordered the Soviet Union and China, which was having a civil war. It didn't seem implausible that a communist government could come to power in India, especially given its strong communist party. British intelligence had already uh, discovered that direct financial aid from Moscow for the Indian Communist Party. Ernest Bevan had assurances from Stalin that the Soviets wouldn't interfere in Indian independence, but Bevan and Attlee were not sure how far they could trust him. As April approached, the violence only grew worse. 20 miles from Delhi and Gujarat, 350 people had died in rioting and 4,000 people were made homeless, with some people being purposely burned alive. Gandhi went on a fast and called for Muslim-Hindu unity. Calcutta, Delhi, and Agra were placed under curfew. The markets were closed. Great heaps of trash piled up as the untouchable sweepers were too afraid to perform their duties.
On April the 15th, Gandhi and Jena issued a joint proclamation against violence, but violence continued across India. In an attempt to get Gandhi and Jena to the negotiation table, Mountbatten invited both men to talk separately, and when his meeting with Jena conveniently ran over, he had Gandhi join them. After some brief conversation, Mountbatten arranged a second meeting between the two at Jena's house. Mountbatten declared up front that he expected none of the leaders to endorse the plan because he knew it didn't meet anyone's demands. Instead, he asked them to accept the plan as a solution in the interests of their country. In the end, the country would be partitioned, but so would the Punjab and Bengal, so that a limited Pakistan would emerge, meeting both Congresses and the Muslim League's request as best as possible. The League would get its own nation, but Congress's position on unity was taken into account to, to make Pakistan as small as possible, since Congress was asked to concede their main point of a united India. While Congress had succeeded in pressuring the British to leave India, they had ultimately fallen short of forging the disparate group into a single nation. Although it should be noted that they had, did have a great deal of success in this endeavor and that their failure towers over many other nations' attempts. On June the 4th, Lord Mountbatten announced that the British would leave India August the 15th, 1947, in what became known as the Mountbatten Plan. The British sought to transfer power to both India and Pakistan on dominion status. This would ease the transition to independence and allow many British colonial officers and officials to stay on and help, including Mountbatten himself. For Britain, it would slow her strategic decline and leave her with a measure of influence. On August the 16th, with all the pomp and circumstance, the British Raj ceased to exist and India and Pakistan became independent nations. Huge crowds cheered Mountbatten and cheered long live Great Britain. Britain had managed to extricate itself from the situation, look like a hero, and a civilizing force in the world, while still retaining a long-term influence in the region, no easy accomplishment as we saw in episode 22. The Dutch had left Indonesia in disgrace and with little goodwill. Britain would re retain strong links to both India and Pakistan into the 1960s. Politically, militarily, economically, and culturally, a good deal of this success can be attributed to Mountbatten and Nehru. They became lifelong friends during this period. Moreover, Nehru had been educated as an English gentleman and attended Cambridge. He always maintained that he didn't fight against the British people, but British imperialism. In many ways, he joked, he was the last Englishman to rule India. Britain and India remained extensive trading partners as well. From 1949 to 1950, a quarter of all Indian imports came from Britain, while Britain absorbed a similar amount of Indian goods. Trading more goods with Britain throughout the 1950s than the United States or the Soviet Union. India also had 750 million pounds in foreign currency reserves, which were held in London and used to buy foodstuffs, fund de development, and buy consumer goods. British business also remained a force in India into the late 1960s. India's tea, mining, and oil refinery industries remained largely controlled by British interests. In Calcutta, much of the city's infrastructure, including its electricity, train system, were still owned by companies based in London. Military terms, 
India also remained heavily reliant on Britain to supply its armed forces with the bulk of their training and equipment. British officers continued to nurture a network of connections with the Indian Armed Services, both formal and informal, which had been built up over the centuries when India was under the Raj. At Nehru's request, senior British officers remained in important posts. A British general led the Indian Army until 1949. The Air Force was headed by a British officer until 1950, and the Navy was commanded by a British admiral until 1958. MI5 also stayed on in India with a post in Delhi in support of the Indian Intelligence Service until the 1960s. Indeed, it wasn't the Indians who asked them to leave, but the British government through budget cuts. Within hours of independence, though, the Punjab exploded into chaos. By August the 26th, Lahore was described as a city of the dead. Calcutta and Delhi were in complete chaos. On September the 6th, Delhi's railway station was bombed, aimed at fleeing Muslims. When police arrived, they shot into a Hindu crowd, which was followed by riots. In all, some 450 people died in a two-day period as violence erupted across the city. Mobs attacked Muslim shops. The army arrived and tried to disperse the crowd with bullets and tear gas, and even Nehru, Nehru himself attacked looters with a stick. By October, there were some 400,000 Hindu and Sikh refugees from the Punjab living in New Delhi. In the south, rioting broke out in Mysore and Bangalore, where po- police joined civilians in looting. North of Old Delhi, a battle raged for 12 hours between the army and armed civilians that left the streets littered with bodies. Reports estimate that some 600,000 were involved in the rioting. The chaos and death of the partition had also been estimated at roughly 1 million people. Perhaps as many as 125,000 women were raped, and an estimated 10 to 15 million people migrated between the two nations during this period. September the 2nd, Gandhi fasted once again in protest to all the violence, and within a day, Calcutta had been silenced. Gandhi's publicly supported Nehru's unpopular policies of protecting Muslims and minorities and for avoiding war with Pakistan. Gandhi soon traveled to Delhi and looked to to travel to the Punjab to help calm the situation. Never make it, sadly. Walking to prayer at a garden, a young man with a Beretta jumped out and shot him three times in the chest at point-blank range, killing Gandhi almost instantly. An American diplomat pummeled the assassin to the ground. Gandhi's assassination would mark one of the many during the Cold War, like Kennedy, his brother Bobby, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King, to name a few. The other issue to confront India in the early months of independence was the princely states. Most joined India, but some did not. Kashmir we'll talk about next episode, but Hyderabad, the largest princely state, announced that it would not join the Indian Union, and its leader, Nizam, would remain its absolute monarch. India, however, claimed that the vast majority of the Hyderabad wanted to join India. Moreover, like in most of India, communal violence had broken out between Muslims and Hindus. The Nizam was in a weak position, as his army numbered only 24,000 men, of whom only 6,000 were fully trained and equipped. Nehru was reluctant to invade, fearing a military response by Pakistan. India was unaware that Pakistan had no plans to use arms in Hyderabad. unlike Kashmir, where it admitted its its troops were were present. Hyderabad applied to the United Nations and the British government for protection, but no help came. 
On September the 4th, the Indian Army invaded Hyderabad with 35,000 troops, and the Indian Army was greeted as liberators. After five days, Nazam surrendered, and Hyderabad was incorporated into India. Much criticism and blame for the violence has been placed on Mountbatten and the British. Many said that he could have used troops to quell the violence and that the transition had been too quick. The, these critics ignore the fact that the British Army had been withdrawing and by 1947, only 11,000 troops were left in India. Second, when they offered the Indian officials uh, help, the Indians rejected, saying it would only make the situation worse. Nehru said that he would rather watch every village in India go up in flames than keep a single British soldier in India. In terms of the speed, the withdrawal of the withdrawal, there is no evidence that waiting another year longer until 1948 would have drastically altered the situation. Moreover, the British people and government wanted out. The British public didn't understand why the violence was happening in the Punjab, nor were they willing to invest limited British resources into it. Like in India, Pakistan faced riots and violence. Rich Hindu merchants flooded cities despite efforts by the Pakistani government to have them stay, and unlike India, Pakistan was broke. Pakistan also faced the prospect of war with India and Kashmir, which I will cover in the next episode, and in Hyderabad. Under these circumstances, Janus reached needed support. He reached out to both the Americans and the British and offered Pakistan, a Muslim country, as a bulwark against the spread of communism in the region, in contrast to the self-proclaimed socialist Nehru. Elements within the U.S. were starting to realize that Pakistan would be their natural ally in the region and not India. Pakistan asked the United States for $2 billion in aid. Instead, the Americans offered $10 million. By the mid-1950s, when America started to battle the Soviets for hearts and minds, Pakistan started to look like a better investment. Initially, as a barricade to the spread of communism in the Middle East, and later as a buffer to the spread of Chinese communism. In 1954, Eisenhower entered into a military alliance with Pakistan. Between the mid-1950s and the mid-1960s, the United States would give Pakistan and India $12 billion in economic and military aid. Fortunately for the Americans, India and Pakistan used most of these funds fighting each other, Following the Second Indo-Pakistan War, Lyndon Johnson withdrew American support for the region. Britain's relationship with Pakistan was less friendly, though mutually beneficial. Pakistan always felt that Brit the British had favored India over them, and there was some truth to this. Mountbatten had not split the Raj's physical assets evenly between the two after independence, and India was split in Nehru's favor. Mountbatten was so hated that he was referred to as a serpent in local newspapers, and in 1956, they refused to allow his plane to fly over Pakistan. Nevertheless, mutual defense interests ensured London and Karachi worked with each other into the 1950s. In 1955, Pakistan did join the Baghdad Pact, a defense alliance in the Middle East, led by Britain to stop the advance of communism and the Soviet Union in the region sort of like a British-led NATO in the Middle East. Jinnah's use of identity politics to create an Islamic state in India succeeded, but was less successful at creating a democratic, progressive, liberal democracy with a moderate Islamic flavor as he had wished. Jinnah himself was struggling to survive. He had suffered from tuberculosis for over a decade and was fading fast. 
The absence of strong political leadership in Pakistan further complicated its task of weaving together its disparate peoples into a cohesive, loyal nation-state. Most of the League's leadership had come from central India. This was also reflected in the fact that Urdu was made the national language of Pakistan. Its roots were in the, in the Mughal Empire, which again had been based in Delhi. Most of the local people didn't speak the language. Pakistan's greatest challenge was it was split in two between India and contemporary Bangladesh, as it was a part of Pakistan as well. As such, it was difficult to administer and defend. Many came to believe, after Pakistan's clashes with India in 1947, that its very existence was linked to a well-trained, well-equipped, and well-led army. Pakistan went on to become the founding member of the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, or CETO, or the Asian equivalent of NATO, which was designed to contain China and the Pacific. In 1951, Pakistan's first prime minister was assassinated, and a succession of inept and or corrupt leaders proved unwilling and or incapable of tackling the formidable issues confronting the nation. Pakistan had to wait until 1956 before a national constitution was passed. In the interim, they had been using the 1935 Government of India Act. These security threats and structural weaknesses necessitated the growth of a security state, in which its new leaders distrusted the people and the military assumed an ever-growing role in running the state and in maintaining national cohesion. In India, Congress and Nehru exercised an iron grip on power in a virtual one-party system spawning a political dynasty that lasted throughout the Cold War. In contrast to Pakistan, India took a cautious view of the United States and preferred to deal with the British when they could. Fear of American economic imperialism, fueled in part by American NGOs like the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation, which they were seen as imperialist agents, America's racial problems were another concern for India, especially the policies of segregation in the South, which echoed in many ways its experience under colonial rule. But Delhi was cautious of Moscow as well. The Kremlin's ruthless subjugation of Eastern Europe troubled Indian politicians. One senior Indian diplomat serving in Eastern Europe pointed out the condition of Soviet friendship is like a political subservience. Nehru also took a firm line with the Indian Communist Party, as well as arresting those suspected of inciting uh, civil disorder or engaging in political subversion. Nevertheless, India did increase trade with the Soviet Union in the mid-1950s to increase its influence with the Western powers. Nehru also had a great deal of respect for China. He saw Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists as allies as they had helped him to pressure America and Great Britain to grant India independence. He was quick, however, to recognize the People's Republic of China and Mao who had managed to strengthen and unify China. China, like India, had experienced a similar level of humiliation and treatment under Western colonial rule the last hundred years, and they felt an affinity for the Chinese for this reason. India backed the PRC's admission to the United Nations, refused to declare China an aggressor in the Korean War, and even signed a trade deal in 1954 with China. However, India soon had worries about China's growing strength. In October 1950, China annexed Tibet and constructed a number of military airfields and bases, which led some Indian officials to question whether China might challenge India's influence over Nepal. In conclusion, the independence of India in the early Cold War drastically changed the world. 
Britain didn't really leave India overnight either. It faded from the scene. More importantly, the fact that India even won independence was a hu- had a huge impact on the world and the decolonization movement. Nations saw an empire as powerful as the British could be forced to give up. Britain itself, though, learned a lot from the end of the Raj. They learned how to turn decolonization to their advantage, how to wrap up empire but save face, retain influence, and in many cases, goodwill, a process they would use throughout the Cold War. In stark contrast to many other colonial empires like France, Belgium, and Portugal, India's partition and the manner in which Pakistan was created had a long-lasting impact on our current world. It established India as one of the leading nations in the Nine Aligned Movement and Pakistan as one of America's principal allies in the region. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 26. Stay tuned for our next episode, May the 1st, as we examine the first Indo-Pakistan war over Kashmir. Don't forget to tell your friends about us. If you don't have a lot of friends in history, feel free to give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you have questions or feedback, please feel free to contact us through the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. As always, if you want to support us, uh, feel free to contribute to us through Patreon on the website. A $5 contribution would help us to create more original content for you. If you can't contribute $5, contribute what you feel is appropriate. Any donation helps and is appreciated. Moreover, when on the website, feel free to fill out our survey there so that you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.